Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Your year in review. We look back at the top pro-life headlines that moved our nation in 2023. First up, after a year of political ping pong on access to abortion pills, the U.S. Supreme Court agrees to take up a case that could save women and children by limiting access to these fatal drugs. A tragic case out of Texas. Pregnant mother Kate Cox sought an abortion after doctors said her baby had a fatal disease. The state Supreme Court denied her case just hours after she left Texas to end the life of her unborn baby. Pro-life OBGYN Dr. Christina Francis reacts. And remembering lives lost. As the year comes to a close, we look back to remember the lives we are fighting for. This summer, we got an exclusive look at a memorial service honoring over 100 unborn children who lost their lives at an abortion facility right here in Washington, D.C. Breaking news from the nation's capital this week, the Supreme Court will hear cases regarding access to the abortion drug mifepristone, the first of two drugs used in a chemical abortion. Last year, a group of pro-life doctors filed a lawsuit against the Food and Drug Administration in an attempt to take the pills off the market. In April of 2023, a district judge agreed with their suit. And in August, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the drug can still be available but could not be dispensed through the mail. Then, President Biden and the company who makes abortion pills asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. Now the high court has agreed to consider the pro-abortion appeals and will hear oral arguments this coming spring. A ruling will likely be issued next summer. For now, Mifepristone remains on the market. We go now to Owen Jensen and Eric Rosales, White House and Capitol Hill correspondents for EWTN News Nightly. Gents, thanks for being here today. Owen, I understand you have reaction from the White House to this Supreme Court news. What are they saying? Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it was all of two paragraphs from the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Let me just start with the sentence number one from the first paragraph. Across the country, we've seen unprecedented attacks on women's freedom to make their own health decisions. States have imposed extreme and dangerous abortion bans that put the health of women in jeopardy and that threaten to criminalize doctors for providing the health care that their patients need and that they are trained to provide. No woman should be unable to access the health care that she needs. This should not happen in America period. I could go on, but you can see the gist of their argument here. Yes, thank you for that, Owen. And going off of that, over the past year, the Biden administration has put the pedal to the metal when it comes to abortion. Vice President Kamala Harris toured college campuses across the country this year, essentially stumping for abortion. Can you tell us about this tour? Yes. Well, let's go back to day one of the administration. The Biden-Harris administration has been full goal on abortion, starting with rescinding the Mexico City policy. Uh, then, you know, Vice President Harris basically spearheading the whole abortion push. She's been holding these reproductive rights, they call them, health care uh, roundtables across the country, meeting with uh, abortion advocates and uh, activists and local and state leaders. And then most recently, she held something called the Fight for Our Freedoms college tour. I got it right here in my hand. Uh, they basically run around different colleges and packing the places in gymnasiums and whatnot and 18, 19, 20-year-olds screaming and hollering and hooting as she came in there. Basically, it was like a pep rally, you'd say, for, for abortion. So that's been uh, what she's been doing uh, 
uh, the last uh, several months now, especially since the Dobbs case overturned Roe v. Wade. Sure, right. And Eric, I want to go to you. We've been following on the Hill Senator Tuberville's holdout of military nominations for most of the year. Did anyone expect he would relent after 10 months? But I have to say everyone here except him. You know, we have to remember that this is a former college football coach uh, turned senator who has been booed by thousands of people in a stadium setting. So he's not uh, afraid to ruffle any feathers up here on Capitol Hill. And Senator Tuberville pretty much told me that uh, he's really upset with the lack of leadership in the Republican Party. He says that the GOP should be the ones for pro-life, but... The way that pro-life Republican senators like Senator Joni Ernst and Don, Dan Sullivan and even Lindsey Graham called him out on the Senate floor and went after him, Senator Tuberville tells me that he didn't want Democrats forcing a rules change, so he decided to back off. He also said that he can't believe that Republicans were going to go along with the vote with Democrats to change the rules. Senator Tuberville says that he's going to continue his fight for the unborn and represent the people of Alabama. Mm. But the fight isn't over for the pro-life community. We have to remember that Senator Dan Sullivan, who was part of the Armed Services Committee, well, he's going to be going after the third in charge of the Pentagon. That's a civilian employee who still has to be confirmed, and he's the one who would oversee the DOD's abortion travel policy. And Senator Sullivan tells me that he's confident that he has the votes to actually stop the nomination. So, Prudence, there is hope for the pro-life community. Eric, going back to Capitol Hill, the battle continues now over the military's abortion policy as Congress moves towards passing the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, the current version of this bill, which funds the entire military, doesn't include any provisions that protect unborn life. Is that correct? What, what can you tell us? Yeah, that is correct. You know, Senator Joni Ernst tells me that she, she tried, that is, twice to keep out of the DOD's abortion travel policy out of the bill, but it failed. There are some pro-family provisions that did get in, language like prohibiting the DOD from requiring the use of gender pronouns and personal pronouns and also funding to promote critical race theory for service members and service academies. But what is concerning is items like sex reassignment surgeries paid for through TRICARE, which is basically tax dollars that was left in, along with pornographic library, school library books on bases and even drag shows at military installations. Those can still occur. By getting back to, but getting back to the pro-life uh, measures, pro-life senators uh, tell me that the Biden administration is really just pushing the envelope every single time trying to get, allow for abortion on demand. Mm, so unfortunate. Well, Eric Rosales and Owen Jensen, it's an honor to report alongside you for EWTN. Thanks for your excellent coverage of the pro-life issue over this year. Thank you. God bless. All right. In 2023, we celebrated an important milestone, the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Since the Dobbs decision in June of 2022, nearly half of states have advanced laws restricting abortion, resulting in an increase in births in states like Texas, Mississippi, and Missouri. But Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry have not gone away quietly and encouraged people in those states to travel elsewhere to end the lives of their unborn children. A report by Axios shows that the rate of abortions overall actually increased in 2023, with the highest increases taking place in Illinois, Florida, North Carolina, California, and New Mexico. In June, we spoke with Attorney General Lynn Fitch of Mississippi to hear how she's been leading on life amidst this ever-changing landscape of abortion laws. 
I'm here with Attorney General Lynn Fitch from Mississippi. Her uh, case overturned Roe versus Wade. So we're here today at the Lincoln Memorial. Attorney General Fitch, thanks for being with us. Talk to me about what it means to you to be here today. Gosh, what an incredible day today. What a blessed day that God has given us here. Uh, this is a one-year anniversary from the Dobbs decision. Oh, my goodness. I mean, just the incredible things that have happened in the past year after uh, receiving that decision. It's just changed the way history is being made in our country, in our respective states. You know, it's just such an honor to be a part of the team that we uh, championed pro-life, how we've gotten here 50 years, and now we can celebrate the decision of overturning Roe v. Wade. It's a very exciting day. And talk to me a little bit about what this year has been like for you in the state of Mississippi. You guys pretty much banned abortion the day that Roe was overturned. You started that process. So talk to me about the ways that you've empowered women to choose life since then. Well, it was a very quick turnaround. We immediately jumped right back in, fought those last legal battles, and then immediately started to work on next steps. You know, because we asked the justices for the job. We told them the American people are ready, and we truly are. So now in that regard, we have to have an action plan. So in Mississippi, we truly engaged. So as soon as the decision came down, we started working on our plan. We call it the Empowerment Project. Uh, not just only for our state, but we hope other states will adopt it too, because that's truly how we change the hearts and minds of our fellow Americans. So we're doing a lot of exciting things. There are many pillars in the Empowerment Project. One is to have affordable, accessible, quality childcare. It is so important to have that in our state, in our country. It shouldn't cost more to send children to daycare than it does to send them to a fine college or university. We've got to promote workplace flexibility. We've got to have the options for young mothers, young women in the workforce, because we don't want to lose them. We want them to continue to be a part of the tapestry of the workforce. Certainly, we've got to enforce child support. It's important that the fathers primarily pay their dollars for their children to empower their children. Again, that's a, a game changer. Um, we've got to certainly provide resources to our pregnancy centers, to our young mothers, our mothers, young mothers-to-be, and upskill them, give them education, provide them the tools for their next steps. And then lastly, we've got to fix the broken adoption and foster care systems. We've got to get these children into forever homes as quickly as possible. And one final question before I let you go and give, I'm sure, what will be a remarkable speech. Um, talk to me a little bit about your message to attorneys general across the country and state legislators. You know, you have been so bold in standing up for the unborn, taking this case to our highest court. So what's your message to them? Well, we have to continue to work together. We've been given this incredible opportunity to empower women and to promote life. So it's an action plan. What will we do? As I said, we've got the empowerment project. So in our state alone, we've already worked so well with our legislature. I'm so grateful for the work that they've done. They passed a number of tax credits this year for child care, for adoption, for our pregnancy resource centers, which is just amazing. We have been able to streamline the process to get those children into their forever homes. You know, again, thriving, loving families instead of taking such a long time to get there. We've been engaged in uh, full year postpartum uh, for our mothers. Again, important to lift them up in that regard. We actually were able to create the MAMA program this year, which I, one of my particular favorites, uh, Mississippi uh, Access to Maternal Assistance MAMA program, so that young mothers, young mothers-to-be can click online. It's going to be a website and an app, and they can find all the public-private resources right there available to them in their particular county so you can move right forward to finding those resources that will help them in their next steps.
I love that name, Mama Program. It's so fitting. Well, Attorney General, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. It was an honor to speak with you, and congratulations again on this momentous anniversary. Thank you. What an incredible day for all of us in our country. Thank you. And other news that moved our nation and world this year, a ballot loss in Ohio that cemented into their constitution abortions past the point at which a baby can survive outside the womb. Ohio was the eighth state since the overturn of Roe, where the pro-life movement has experienced a loss at the ballot box. And in 2024, as many as a dozen states could see similar attempts to force abortion onto the ballot. This includes some states whose voters have consistently voted to protect life for decades, such as Arkansas and Missouri. Pro-abortion state and national leaders have made it clear that they are pulling out all the stops to advance their agenda, even with Roe versus Wade on the ash heap of history. And a joyful story from Europe. This year, the Catholic Church beatified the Olmas, husband Yosef, wife Victoria, and their seven children, including their newborn baby boy. The Polish family was murdered by the Nazis in 1944 for sheltering several Jewish families in their home. Thousands gathered in southeast Poland in September to celebrate and honor the heroic lives of the Olmas. They are the first family in the history of the Catholic Church to be beatified together. Coming up, Texas woman requests an abortion from the state Supreme Court after her baby received a fatal diagnosis. Pro-life doctor Christina Francis reacts. Plus, a memorial for unborn lives. We look back at a burial service for babies brutally killed by abortionists. We have that special story for you next. You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. We now bring you the latest in the case of Kate Cox, a woman who recently traveled out of her home state of Texas to end the life of her unborn child. It's a case that raises questions about exceptions to pro-life laws and the role of a doctor in protecting mothers' lives as well as their babies. About two weeks ago, Texas mother Kate Cox was given emergency permission by a Texas judge to end her baby's life due to a diagnosis of trisomy 18, a potentially life-threatening degenerative disease that babies sometimes develop in utero. Pro-life attorney general Ken Paxton appealed to the Supreme Court to block the judge's ruling, stopping Kate's ability to go through with an abortion. And the state Supreme Court agreed. Now, Kate, who has faced some very hard decisions throughout her difficult pregnancy, has traveled out of state to end her child's life. She's encouraged by her pro-abortion doctor, as well as national pro-abortion groups, such as the Center for Reproductive Rights. Throughout 2023, we've seen many women suing state courts, demanding the right to end their children's lives, though they live in states where there are duly enacted laws to protect unborn children. To give us her reaction and to help us unpack this is Dr. Christina Francis, CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Francis, thank you so much for being with us to start what can you tell me about trisomy 18? This is the disease that Cox's doctor diagnosed her baby with. I'm curious, how much can we know about trisomy 18 when the baby is still in utero? Yeah, well, thank you, Prudence, so much for having me on. And I want to start out by saying that um, my heart goes out to Mrs. Cox and, and her husband. And uh, as they go through this, this very difficult time, you know, the diagnosis of trisomy 18 is, is one that's often 
devastating for families when they first learn about it. Trisomy 18 is a chromosomal condition. Many people will have heard of trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Trisomy 18 is similar in that it involves three copies of the 18th chromosome, um, but it is different from Down syndrome in that its impact on the child is oftentimes more severe. And we know that this is typically a life-limiting condition uh, for that child. However, it is not, as is being portrayed in the media right now, and even in the court filings by Mrs. Cox's lawyers, it is not a uniformly fatal condition. And this is a common misunderstanding, I think, even amongst physicians. So we know based on um, more recent evidence in the last 10 years or so, that when you actually give medical interventions to these children, shockingly or not shockingly, they can survive. Uh, and you know it doesn't mean they survive without impacts on their health. They certainly have mental and physical delays. Um, but some of these children survive into their teens or even early 20s, mm. again, with appropriate medical intervention. And so just a short review of some of the data that we have, uh, we do know that many of these children, unfortunately, will pass away in utero or shortly after birth. But for those that survive to one month of age, which may be as high as about 15%, if they are given appropriate medical interventions, up to 70% in some studies of them will survive until one year of age. And then if they survive to one year of age, the likelihood is very high that they will survive into their teen years. However, it does require that we see these children as human beings with value and worth and as our patients and that we give them appropriate medical care. Absolutely. And uh, Kate Cox's judge and doctor also cited threats to her health in allowing her this abortion. Can you speak to how trisomy 18 might affect the mother's health. Absolutely. Well, of course, you know, I can't comment specifically on Ms. Cox's case because I don't have her full medical record in front of me, but what I do have are the publicly filed court documents. We know that trisomy 18 in and of itself does not pose a life-threatening risk to the mother. There are certain things that can happen as a result of trisomy 18, such as um, a, a demise where the baby passes away in utero. There are many other conditions in pregnancy that cause an increased risk of stillbirth. And if that were to happen, then of course the appropriate intervention at that time would be to either deliver her or um, or do you know another procedure such as a DNA procedure to to remove that baby um, from her. Mm. However, what's set up in the court filing documents is that this right now poses an immediate life-threatening risk um, to her. However, if that really was the case, then Texas law would have allowed uh, them to go ahead with that separation procedure. And so, you know, when we, when again, when I look at the court documents that talk about, you know, that she has previous C-sections or that she's had gestational diabetes in past pregnancies, these are common conditions that we as, as qualified board certified OBGYNs manage all the time. In, in women with um, who are pregnant, and, and we maximize their health as well as the health of their baby. Absolutely. And Dr. Francis, I'm curious, if Kate Cox was your patient and you had found out that she had her child had trisomy 18, what would your advice have been as a pro-life doctor to her? Absolutely. Well, you know, again, I just want to emphasize this is a devastating and heart-wrenching thing for any family to have to walk through. And I have had patients sitting in front of me who have had this very diagnosis or other similar diagnoses for their children. 
the first thing that I would do is offer my full support to help them emotionally as they process this information. This is not information that any family is expecting to receive when they find out that they are pregnant. The next thing that I would talk to them about is even though their child has this life-limiting condition, this is still their child, and they should love this child just as they would any other child. And, and I would help them through, you know, thinking through the process of what this might look like. We do know that for um, children that have life-limiting diagnoses that we find out about in utero, that families actually do better from a mental health standpoint when we offer them the support of something called perinatal palliative care, where they are given the resources to help walk them through their pregnancy, where their child is treated with dignity and respect, where they are treated with dignity and respect, and where they are given a child at delivery that they can hold and either give appropriate medical interventions to if perhaps the diagnosis is wrong or not as severe as we might have expected, or where they're given an intact child that they can hold and grieve if that child doesn't live for very long. And one important point that I think that needs to be made is also in those court filings, it says that Miss Cox did not want to deliver her baby only to have her baby suffer and be in pain. And of course, no mother, no father wants their child to suffer or be in pain, but that is not the case when the baby is in utero um, alive. They're not suffering. They're not in pain. And it does not have to be the case after they're delivered either. We either can provide appropriate medical interventions that will relieve that suffering, or we can provide when appropriate comfort measures where we treat their pain. I know that what would cause her baby pain, however, is a procedure that would dismember that child while that child is still alive. And, you know, part of a, a patient receiving compassionate care that's fully informed is that they understand that that's what's going on. And, and my concern is that Ms. Cox has not been given this information. Well said. Dr. Christina Francis, thank you for your compassionate takes on, on all of this. Uh, thanks for joining us today. God bless. Thank you. We end our show this week with a reminder of the children we fight for. This summer, we got an exclusive look at a memorial service honoring the lives of over 100 children who lost their lives to abortion right here in D.C. They were laid to rest at an undisclosed location in West Virginia by members of the group The Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, or POW. Some of their members were recently arrested and put in jail after they attempted to rescue more children from abortion this fall. In the new year, we'll have more information for you about their ongoing cases, but for now, we remember the lives we fight for. We now commend these infants, or these unborn, preborn, to that same embrace of love in the hope that they will rejoice and be happy in the presence of Christ. A group of nine pro-lifers gathered in a peaceful glade for a sweet yet somber ceremony honoring the lives of these children assumed to have been killed by abortion. They were buried by Father Bill Kaczynski in this spot on April 1st, 2022, just days after their bodies were found and handed over to Teresa Bakovinak. Now, just over a year later, a headstone has been set atop their grave. It was snow, it was uh, sleet, it was rain, uh, and... Uh, but I uh, felt that the babies deserve the honor of being given a burial 
and uh, um, so honored, I think, might be the word. The new headstone reads, here lie the mortal remains of 110 human babies of the over 58 million killed in utero by legalized abortion in the United States of America. It also carries the inscription of a quote by Pope St. John Paul II, which reads in part that the prevalence of abortion in society makes humanity more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Father Bill recited prayers of dedication over the tombstone and spoke with me about why he felt called to ensure these children had a proper resting place. Well, they deserve a burial, again, because they're creating our image and likeness. We just don't throw, in God's image and likeness, we just don't throw such away. Uh, as to what the church teaches regarding the souls of the unborn, uh, we don't know. Uh, but John Paul II uh, uh, always pointed us toward and even in speaking of the deceased brothers and sisters who uh, were, were killed, uh, that uh, we can trust in God's mercy that they are indeed with, with him. The initial discovery of these babies came as a shock to those throughout the D.C. area. They were given to Bakovanak and her colleague Lauren Handy by the truck driver tasked with transporting the babies from Curtis Bay Medical Waste Services. He handed over their remains in a large brown box. We didn't know for sure what was in the box, but... We wanted to be prepared. Then Lauren um, cut open the box. We had a Catholic deacon present. Inside the box, there was a red bag, and she cut open the red bag, and inside were what looked like dozens of tiny turquoise circular plastic cups, and Lauren immediately recognized them as something called whirl packs, uh, which is where they place abortion victims after early abortions. Uh, so we knew immediately that what we did have was dead babies. So as we unpacked each of these containers, we logged them, took photos, and set them onto the table. And as we were taking out the smaller containers, we saw in the bottom there was a, a white, clearish plastic bag. Um, and when Lauren lifted it up, there were five much larger buckets. Along with the remains of these 110 children, five others were found in the box. A group of medical experts, including former abortionists, determined that those five had been aborted much later in pregnancy. She lifted out the most beautiful baby boy. His skin was pink. He was completely intact. Uh, we regularly carry around a 22-week fetal model in our activism, and this baby was so much bigger than that. So we knew immediately we were looking at a baby probably 30 weeks or more. One of the children was still inside its unpunctured amniotic sac, meaning he or she was likely born alive and left to die. Teresa described seeing the burial ground of the younger 110 children as a moment of truth. The truth is here. The truth is buried here in this, on this mountain. These babies existed and they were killed and now they are buried. We promised the the driver of the truck who allowed us to take the box that they these babies would be buried and so we are very grateful that father bill was able to take the smaller 110 into his possession and and bury them give them the burial that we promised Bakovanak and Handy decided to turn over the bodies of the five older children to the authorities. Because they were killed so close to birth, it's possible that these children could have been killed illegally in violation of the Partial Birth Abortion Act, enacted by Congress in 2003. Pictures of the five have been presented in congressional hearings, and POW is advocating for thorough investigations to be launched to learn more about their deaths. 
Bekovinak says the burial of their smaller 110 counterparts is a moment that demands even more justice for babies killed by abortion. This is the pathway to a national ban. If we want to end abortion in this country, especially in these later gestational ages, we've got to show who the victims were. And in order to do that, we need to hold their killer accountable and the American people need to see what is happening. So we're asking members of Congress to do the right thing, to be brave and to not let this moment pass. We must rescue every day to save the children from the slaughter. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. It's been an honor to spend another year with you reporting on the greatest human rights issue of our time. Don't forget you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, X, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life and sign up for our newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.